All right, thanks ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce our afternoon panel to discuss the vision for, for proliferated orbits and small satellites. Space Force leaders have repeatedly discussed the advantages they expect to secure from placing a large number of small, simpler satellites into orbit as part of integrated, collaborative set of low Earth orbit constellations. Not only does this hope to eliminate single points of failure, but it also promises to deliver capability faster and cheaper, and we had a great discussion on that, I think, by our, our lunchtime speaker, Dr. Tournier. At the same time, proliferating beyond LEO is, a, is crucial to better enhance resiliency and enable certain crucial mission areas. So one of the questions we want to explore is, this, is everything going to LEO, or is there a place for MEO and GEO in future architectures? With that, I'd like to introduce our panelists. And first, we have with us Brigadier General Timothy Sheva, the Program Executive Officer for Space Domain Awareness and Combat Power, and for Battle Management, Command and Control, and Communications. And General Sheba comes to us from El Segundo, California, where he's working at SCC. Uh, next, we have Colonel, Colonel Eric Felt, the Director of Architecture and Integration in the Office of the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Space Acquisition and Integration. That's Mr. Calvelli's office, and so you're, you're uh, entrenched in the Pentagon fighting the fights there. Thank you for joining us. Next, it's a pleasure to have uh, Mr. Robert Atkin, the Vice President of the Asymmetric Systems Group at General Atomics, Electromagnetic Systems. Um, we had a chance to visit last night at dinner, and I discovered his early passion for shrinking satellites down to smaller sizes and increasing their utility at the same time, not sacrificing capability. So, Robert, welcome. And last, I, I want to introduce and welcome Charles Galbraith, Charles is our senior fellow for space study at, at Mitchell Space, I think our newest acquisition, if you will, and it's great to have you on the team, Charles. appreciate you participating as well. So before we uh, get into the discussion, I'd like to frame why it's important we explore the topic. General Saltzman recently hi highlighted in his congressional testimony that he's exceedingly worried about the possibility for an adversary anti-satellite system to destroy satellites in geosynchronous orbit. As we all know, up to now, the military has placed exquisite large satellites in geosynchronous orbit as linchpins of our space enterprise. But that was back before the enterprise, or I should say the domain, was contested. They worked great when it was a benign environment, but has given uh, where our adversaries have chosen to go in contesting space. There's a reason why General Hyten famously said he wasn't interested in any more big, fat, juicy targets. And I think at that time, he was alluding to our capabilities in geosynchronous orbit. So uh, one of the questions we'll explore is, is, is there still a role for geoconstellations? And is there a possibility of changing big, fat, juicy targets into big, capable, and survivable targets where there might be a need for them? Uh, so it's not, not a, the question is one of the exclusivity. So I'd like to begin, though, with uh, Colonel Felt and, uh, and Mr. Atkin. If we could start um, with the notion, well, the comment, Assistant Secretary Calvelli has laid out, he's, he's laid out nine tenets for the space acquisition community. The first of which is build smaller satellites, smaller ground systems, and minimize non-recurring engineering, which of course is the major cost in just about any program startup. Please walk us through, if you will, 
through the thinking behind their, these statements, and uh, what benefits do you see coming from this approach, particularly in the small SATA arena? And, and Colonel Feltz, if we'll start with you, please. Thank you, sir, for the opportunity, and that is a super important question. Uh, Secretary Kendall has laid out that in order to implement the national defense strategy, he is focused on China, China, China. All right? And so from the space acquisition point of view, uh, uh, Honorable Calvelli has adopted three priorities that are going to support those, the, that, that focus. And his priorities are, are speed, resilience, and integration. And the, his nine tenants come from those three priorities. But I like to use those three priorities to explain the, the benefits that we see from small satellites. So let's start with speed. Uh, small satellites are inherently faster to build than large satellites simply because they're smaller, but that's not the only thing. Uh, small satellites often can use more commodity parts that are more readily available. Ideally, they come off of an assembly line that, that's already producing uh, commercial products, and that makes them faster to produce. And they often can have a, a lower mission assurance posture that's acceptable to the mission than a large satellite. All of those are reasons that you, with a small satellite you can build and launch a satellite uh, within the two to three years that he's laid out. So so that is speed. Speed is key to deterring China. That's why it is so fun, uh, important that we inject that into our space acquisition. And that is, and the small satellites is one element of how we're planning to do that. That's not the only thing. Now, the, we also see tremendous benefits from small satellites in the resilience area. Uh, the big juicy targets become a lot less juicy if you have a hybrid architecture. And what I mean by that is the hybrid architecture that also has capability in LEO, for example, with proliferated small satellites, that makes taking out the geo capability less uh, attractive to the, to the adversary. So you can make those same targets less juicy with small satellites and having a hybrid architecture. And just having hundreds of satellites instead of a, a few or dozens of satellites is inherently more resilient. So the, there's tremendous resiliency benefits as the Space Warfighting Analysis Center does their their architecting and their force design work. Uh, they uh, analyze this resiliency aspect as one of the most important criteria that they look at. And everything they've done so far comes up with an element of the architecture at LEO. And my prediction is for our Space Force missions, our current Space Force missions, we will have an element at LEO for every, uh, every mission area. It doesn't mean we are only at LEO. We want to have a hybrid architecture. But I do think we will have an element at LEO in, in every area for resilience. And then the last thing is, is integration. Small satellites, we see a tremendous benefit in being able to more easily integrate and integrate with, with commercial, integrate with partners, uh, integrate our ground systems with our space systems, integrate different kinds of space systems. Uh, for example, if you're going to well, build a constellation with a, a partner or an ally, uh, and it is much easier for them to build one small compatible satellite and put it into a constellation with other small compatible satellites than to ask them, for example, to, uh, to, to, to build a large uh, a WGS or something like that. So, so those are the three benefits that uh, Honorable Calvelli sees from small satellites and why they're so important to our future. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Atkin, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, yeah I do. Uh, I'd like to really piggyback on that, actually, because I, I think it's um, – so I, I've been building small satellites and operating them for 30 years, uh, you know, General Thomas acquired my company a couple of years ago, and before then I spent a, a 25 years trying to build small components to really compress the size of spacecraft as well as compress the form factor of compute capability. And everybody in this room has this nifty little supercomputer that they carry around in their pocket, or maybe two. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that the, the calculus has changed, that we can uh, integrate, like at, at General Atomics now, my job is really to 
integrate more of the capability that General Atomics or at large has. So I can bring lasers, I can bring uh, radiological power, I can bring uh, production capability to bear on these small spacecraft. Still, you know, there's still more room to, to squeeze things down. But I don't believe that we're limited now to just LEO for small spacecraft. The spacecraft themselves are so much more capable that they have a, a role in GEO. And then they're significantly cheaper to, to launch, significantly cheaper to put large amounts of capability up there. And once they're small, they're much, much harder to see, much harder to target. And they're not big, fat, juicy targets. They're just little spec targets, right? And so it just it makes the problem set on the other side much more difficult uh, for, you know, for the adversary to manage. So uh, I think what I've heard from both of you is it's not going to be an exclusively LEO architecture that we'll lean forward on. Uh, it both complicates the adversary's targeting to have multiple orbits to operate from. Uh, I could, if I could follow up, because you mentioned uh, GA's work in uh, propulsion. Do you see um, right now our geostationary satellites, you know, were designed with propulsion systems essentially to station keep, not to get out of the way of a threat. Do you see a potential opportunity there for geostationary satellites to actually maneuver in the future by design or be able to maneuver by design to uh, avoid an attack? I, I do. Um, you know, the thrusters that are uh, allow that for that are much larger and so mm -hmm. it's more complicated on a larger spacecraft. The benefit of a small spacecraft is the little small thrusters that you use for station keeping also provide enough thrust that you can rapidly maneuver and change your orbital position. Because of their lower mass, yeah. Because of their lower yeah. mass, yeah. exactly. And so it, it's sort of a twofold benefit that you get from trying to shrink the vehicle. You know, it doesn't have to be the size of a school bus. If it's the size of a shoebox, you can imagine how much more difficult it is to see and how much easier it is for it to move around. Okay. Of course, some things physics still applies. You can't have you know, a giant optic in a little teeny tiny spacecraft, but right. there are other ways to try to, to address that problem. Yeah, we'll never, to get the capabilities, I suspect we won't see really small satellites on the scale we're talking about at this conference at GEO for simple physics reasons. Maybe smaller than well, we see today, but, you know, well, we a, a different scale, uh, though, space right? domain awareness and things like that. Those things, you don't need to have gigantic right. telescopes, and if you have a lot of these things proliferated around, they can do that inspection mission much better. Like GSAP today. Yeah, right. Exactly. Very but good. everybody knows where GSAP is, yeah. right? So I can move my – if I'm an adversary, I know where that is, so I can stay away from it. If there's a little teeny tiny one that I don't know where it is, or there's a whole slew of them, it's much, much more difficult for me to, to try to avoid. Very good. Very good. Thanks. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit to launch, responsive launch. And uh, General Sheba and, and Mr. Galbraith, I'd like to ask you, um, so the, tac the, the concept, the topic of tactical responsive launch has been garnering a lot of in interest lately. It's not a new concept. I remember the ORS program, Operationally Responsive Space, uh, when I was on active duty. Um, I was wondering, how, how do you define tactical responsive launch and how do small satellites support that particular mission? General Shadow, let me start with you. Sure. No, thanks for the question. Um, it's certainly uh, of, of keen interest right now uh, within my team of, within Space Force. So you know, what we've tried to really do is, is kind of broaden the discussion. Um, responsive launch has been kind of the, the point that we've discussed for a number of years. Uh, but responsive launch for what? And, and so we've really tried to re, uh, redefine 
responsive space and that you only have responsive space capabilities if you have the end-to-end -end capabilities both with launch vehicles, ground systems that are ready to operate those, and launch capabilities that can put them on orbit when needed. So you know, the way we're defining tactically responsive space is it's an operational capability uh, that's meant to be able to uh, meet needs on orbit uh, in an operationally time-relevant fashion. Um, that is really where we're trying to drive to. Um, sir, I think I remember probably Major Shaver briefed you years ago on the idea of, of plug-and-play uh, capabilities and, and uh, the vision of where that would go. You know, 15 years ago, we just didn't have necessarily the industry base to be able to do some of those things. And we certainly didn't, I don't think at the time, had the launch capabilities. But we certainly see that now today. So what we're trying to do is be very specific also about what aspects of a mission do we think tactically responsive space can really go after. Uh, it's not really replenishment like we've talked about maybe in the past with concepts like ORS. It's really going after two very specific areas. One is to be um, to respond, respond to a, a new threat or an emerging threat that we have to be able to categorize either through space domain awareness capabilities or space control capabilities. The second is really augment. How do we take, uh, and I think it's complementary when we look at proliferated architectures in different orbits, how do we then potentially augment capabilities, whether it be in SATCOM for very specific mission cases or maybe tactically, uh, uh, tactical ISR? Those are two of the areas that we see that augmentation, whether it be from a government capability or especially commercial capabilities, that we could very easily then plug into and, and augment the current architecture in time of uh, conflict or crisis. So that's kind of where we're heading right now when we talk about tactically responsive space. There's really three different ways that you could do that. You know, the first, if we kind of go with the uh, exploit uh, by build mantra that SSC has been pushing for the last year and a half, uh, we can look at commercial. There's certainly a lot of commercial capabilities today in what I just mentioned that would be able to provide either uh, additional capability to respond to a potential uh, crisis at LEO or even augment some of the capabilities that we have uh, from a government perspective. So I think that certainly is one of the key places, and that is fairly easy to do given the industry base that is continuing to grow in those areas and how we now have a commercial space office that's designed for us to be able to go out and buy those commercial services uh, within hours or days. So I think that's the first piece that we have to always look at uh, as a number one uh, choice. The second one then is, uh, do we actually build capability and do we have it in reserve on the ground? Um, we're not necessarily talking about a fleet of GPS satellites that are sitting in the barn uh, waiting to go, but we are talking about you know small sack capabilities that could be launched uh, in a, a moment's notice to be able to respond to some of those threats that we see on orbit is one of the potentials. So we see that as a, as a real potential that we're starting to build out that concept. And then the final one is, um, in some cases, maybe storing capability on orbit is the best way for us to actually be able to respond to uh, a new capability. We're already seeing that with a lot of the proliferated architectures across LEO where inherently they already have spares that are on orbit waiting for one of the operational capabilities to fail so they can turn on one of the, the spares that they have on orbit. So we're already seeing tactically responsive space play out in a proliferated architecture. We're looking at how do we then enhance that and give the combatant commander additional capability. The way we're going to do that this year is Vistix uh, Knox is our operational demo that's uh, scheduled for early summer. Uh, that really is um, an operationally responsive capability uh, for the combatant commander into LEO with a space domain awareness mission. 
the challenge that we have been given is that from the time we are given uh, the go, uh, we are supposed to have that capability on orbit within 24 hours. So that is really going to test the entire part of the system. That's going to test responsive launch. It's going to uh, test our ability to encapsulate, stack, launch, and then have it in operations with an operational crew on the receiving end of that. So that really is the goal of what uh, Victor Knox is trying to accomplish. That plays into the larger TAC-RS mission, sir. So you, you've kind of defined responsive, at least in one scenario there, as 24 hours. Um, but is there, is there a range of responsiveness that you're looking for as you look at these different, three different scenarios you described where we want, wanna, might want to have this capability? You know, I'll, I'll, if I go back to the commercial side again uh, with commercial capabilities today that we're testing out and improving in many cases through things like the, the JCO out in Colorado Springs, some of those capabilities, again, uh, with, with uh, a credit card, you can turn on data. Uh, within hours. So that certainly is responsive in my perspective, and that's just as, again, a responsiveness that 15 years ago when we talked about this, these concepts, we just didn't have that broad industry base necessarily to do it. Um, the scenarios I played out of having uh, a, a small reserve on the ground, again, the challenge is how do we respond to a threat um, immediately? So the challenge is 24 hours, and how do we drive that to that point? Uh, that is certainly going to be a challenge given, you know, where, what we've demonstrated to date. Um, on orbit, I think, gives us a lot of flexibility uh, also. But then, you know, as we look at what the production lines look like today, there are already production lines across parts of my portfolio and across industry that if we needed to be able to take a satellite bus and plug it into an existing ground system that already controls that, and there's plug-and-play capabilities for payloads, a number of different payloads that are already near production line quality, I think within months you could also have other capabilities that you could put together based off of maybe a new emerging threat that maybe you hadn't planned for. So I certainly see a range there. Um, the challenge is going to be how do you work through all the processes uh, uh, required to launch and then operate to make sure that you're driving all of the latency out of those processes to get to those timelines I just talked about. Great. Thanks. Mr. Galbraith, did you have some comments? Yes, sir. So, thank you. And I, so I agree with uh, General Shape, of course, that uh, augmentation is really one of the key factors for being able to responsibly uh, deliver capabilities. Uh, I, I think it is a potentially a show of force even that we're going to augment our capabilities prior to a conflict so that we stay in the crisis mode, as, as General Saltzman has talked about. Uh, I, I think I will push back a little bit, though, and say that the, the ability to reconstitute, to, to replenish a lost capability is still important because when you look at an overall mission assurance architecture, it's not just the resilience of the system but also the ability to, to rebound. Um, and so I think the reconstitution does have a, a key part to play uh, because it does decrease the, the value of attacking the assets in the first place. Uh, General Shea was absolutely right, though, that there are multiple ways to get to that reconstitution, launching new capabilities, activating spares, leveraging commercial or allied capabilities, uh, absolutely. But, it, but it's interesting, back to the original question on tactically responsive launch. Uh, a few years ago, that would have been a launch on schedule versus launch on demand question. Uh, mm -hmm. But we've evolved so much beyond that. Uh, and it, we used to talk about having barns of, of satellites ready to go. Uh, but, boy, isn't that a waste? We've, we've built these satellites, and now we're not utilizing them. The, the dynamic now with the uh, advent of proliferated LEO constellations has really changed that. We have assembly lines of satellites. And if a capability is required for a crisis, 
we can take one satellite off of that assembly line and one satellite off of this assembly line and launch it where and when we need it. Um, whether that's a dedicated launch of, of a tactical nature or whether that's a ride share for one of the, you know, rapid launches that we have on a recurring basis, you know, that, that's somewhat irrelevant. Uh, but I, I think that the game has definitely changed as a result of PLEO. Uh, I'm glad to see small satellites gaining uh, the attention that they deserve. For so long, it was we've got to develop all this capability of, with exquisite uh, capacity and multiple redundancy. Uh, but there's a lot of benefit to be had from, from small satellites, and, and it's great to see that coming again. It's great. You know, um, I actually opposed the ORS concept when I was Space Command commander because there was no CONOPS. Uh, you know, there was no, you, did, you couldn't answer those questions. So how many rockets are you going to have standing by? How many satellites are you going to have sitting in the barn? Or are you going to have a hot production line? Or what's your refresh rate? And we, we just hadn't thought through the CONOPS. And, and in fact, you no know, technology hadn't gotten to where we are today. The availability of launch today with all the different folks trying to compete in that, in that area has evolved. And certainly the technology of what we can package in a satellite. And now the demand function that we heard from uh, Dr. Tournier, uh, for large numbers of constellations, going to motivate industry, uh, hopefully, to have those productions line, production lines stay warm. Of course, that, that requires consistent funding from the Congress. Um, Mr. Atkin, I was wondering if you could share some of your, your thoughts on uh, what, what can government do to further cultivate uh, the growing sector of small satellites and make sure that it, you know, at the end of the day, and I've had industry partners say to me, remember, <laughs> we got to make a profit. We're not in this as a charity operation. And so um, how you contract for them, how you incentivize people to stay in the game, even when they're not picked this round, I think is an important question. I was wondering if you could share your thoughts from an industry perspective. Absolutely. I think the first thing we need to do is stop talking about things being stored in a barn. They should be stored in pelican cases, right? <laughs> not. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think risk, there's actually two things, risk risk and security. So from the risk perspective, every uh, everyone here, uh, General, General Saltzman, Dr. Tournier, every panel that's been here has said we need to move fast. The, the adversary is moving too quickly. We need, we just need more capability more quickly. And I think part of the problem is we need to be not afraid of failure. And it's not so much that... You know, I, I don't plan for failure. General Atomic certainly doesn't plan for fail, plan to fail, but it's you have to plan for failure and understand that failure in a development sense means that you are accepting enough risk that you're being able to move as fast as possible without, you know, you have to balance that at the hairy edge. If I can, if I can pack five payloads into one spacecraft and I'm accepting a bunch of risk because I'm jamming all of them in there, but I can do that with one launch, one spacecraft, and say I'm 80% successful versus having five individual programs that then stretch out over time. I, I've still beaten the, the odds, even if those are 100% successful. And we need to stop looking at that as a bad thing. And I think maybe at the leadership, people say we need you know, to accept risk. But once you get down to the, the program offices, it doesn't really seem to be the case. They tell us in industry well, yeah, we understand you won't risk, but why are you, I had this happen last week, why are you offering me four things when I've only asked for one? And it's, well, because the four things are better than one, and you know that, and, well, yes, but it's too risky. Well, that's the, the exact point, right? And then on the security side, um, you know, we have everything is all stovepiped, and everybody understands that we have to try to address that, but 
part of the problem is uh, computer systems, you know, security clearances for people, those get tied to contracts. And so if you haven't, don't have an active contract, then you can't, you don't have those systems. You may have good ideas and let's say you get them uh, in front of the relevant people and they say, oh good, we're going to award you contract. Now it takes six to 12 months to get the IT systems turned around and the government needs to figure out ways to make it easier for no-cost contracts to relevant players so that one can keep those IT systems up and operating continuously and be able to provide those ideas on the timescales and keep the clearances for the people when you're in between contracts as opposed to only from con hopping from contract to contract. Very good. Uh, I've seen where we've depopulated expertise because of a lost contract and then it's really hard to reconstitute. So it's a great exactly. point. The risk aversion is also a great point that uh, I think uh, General Burke talked about that in an earlier panel. It's in our nature, in the nature of the Department of Defense to be risk averse, but uh, these times call for uh, new, new approaches that I'm hearing from you gentlemen on stage. Um, Mr. Galbraith, and, and this is for, um, uh, for Colonel Felt as well, you know, we've talked about um, how small satellites can support um, missile warning, missile tracking in low Earth orbit. Uh, communications relay of data as well as providing relay nodes for tactical forces and delivering um, operating common operating pictures at the operational level war. But there are certainly other national security uses for small satellites that uh, the Space Force could use to fulfill their missions. And uh, Mr. Atkin, you talked about one, uh, domain surveillance at, at GEO. But I'm, I'm thinking more along the lines of capabilities that could hold adversaries' assets at risk, for example, or small satellites that could provide ISR support to Title X forces that are commanded and controlled, tasked by Title X forces in support of operations in theater. Do you see any opportunities in these areas or, or others that I haven't mentioned? And Mr. Galbraith first and then Colonel. Thank you, uh, absolutely. Uh Small satellites have been around since the beginning of satellites, right? So the, there's obviously capability uh, and, and military utility that can be gained from them. Um, your, your comment about ISR makes me think about the, the Dove satellite, which is a 3U CubeSat operated by Planet, company out of uh, uh, Silicon Valley. So that's providing, uh, through a proliferated constellation of small satellites, uh, a wide area surveillance uh, via imagery. Um, I, I also think about, as you said, the ability to hold a, an adversary's target at risk, potentially. You know, we can launch uh, small satellites uh, into GEO as well. I think the TETRA program is a great example of how we're using that, not to hold an adversary's uh, asset at risk, but to demonstrate what they might do to us and help us develop our TTPs on how to respond to a threat. Um, small satellites aren't just in, in LEO and GEO. Um, there's a small satellite orbiting the moon right now, a capstone project, right? It's a 12U CubeSat, 25 kilograms. Um, so there's, there's potential utility for small sats in every mission area that, that Space Force is involved in, and, and then some. Great. Yes, both for the current missions and for some of these emerging missions that you've mentioned, uh, we the, the architecture that we envision and, and build towards is a hybrid architecture. 
including hybrid in different orbits, hybrid in large satellites, small satellites, hybrid in terms of commercial, government-owned. Uh, all of those things give us good attributes for resilience. And in the, uh, in the ISR area, for example, uh, if you talk about what we'd really like to have on the battlefield, it, it's, uh, you know, everything of interest, everywhere, all the time, and in real time. And each one of those parameters drives an architectural element that small satellites, especially small satellites in proliferated LEO, are, are, turn out to be very useful to fulfilling that vision. And so you'll use in the 24 budget, we did uh, invest in some moving target indicator uh, uh, options to help uh, get after those that those emerging mission areas that we want to be able to support from space uh, missions that may have traditionally been done in the air. Uh, it's a, one of the most important operational imperatives, uh, the Secretary Kendall's operational imperatives that we're working on, that's operational imperative number three. So uh, it's very intentional that we move some of those missions to space because the technology and the, the, the cost structure that we see now for these launch and constellations is very attractive for performing those missions in a highly contested area. So Great. that is yeah. an emerging area. Well, and you know, we'll, we've talked about moving GMTI and AMTI to space. But uh, this is kind of a policy and an acquisition question. Um, reconnaissance from space has become ubiquitous with the advent of commercial ISR. Uh, and yet I hear uh, frustrations from some of those commercial ISR providers is that the only one that will, only people that will buy their data is the NGA. And warfighters need this data, not national reconnaissance collectors, because there, there are different requirements different priorities, different speed of delivery requirements. And so um, I believe even in this budget, a bunch of MIP money was invested to, they went over to the intelligence agencies to acquire these satellites. But at the end of the day, who's going to task them? Are they going to have to compete against national requirements? Or is a theater commander going to be able to turn to his Space Force component in Indo-PACOM, for example, and say, I need a picture of this now, and in minutes, get that photograph delivered directly to its headquarters, not sent to an agency that has to rack and stack it against other priorities. So you talk about buying what you can. It's out there today, but I'm not hearing that the Space Force is buying it. I'm hearing the NGA is buying it. And then are there, the policy fight is looming, I think, on who's going to control these assets that are going to be essential for victory in, uh, in the various combatant commands arenas. So over to you, gentlemen, uh, please. I'll start with just a couple thoughts and turn it over to Eric. Um, certainly, you know, as we look at the, the, the growing capabilities from a commercial standpoint, I'm obviously most familiar with space domain awareness commercial capabilities, which we're leveraging pretty heavily, and I know that's going to continue to grow. Uh, but certainly we're seeing that on the TAC ISR side as well. I know that our commercial space office has a strong partnership right now with the IC on how we are, are purchasing and leveraging commercial data from an ISR standpoint. I also know organizations like AFRL are looking at how do you actually then tie a lot of those commercial capabilities together and have some means of actually tax uh, uh, um, uh, going after and, uh, and tasking them in a time-relevant fashion. Mm -hmm. So there's work looking at how do you leverage all those capabilities again um, you've got more capability on orbit at LEO between national capabilities and really the commercial uh, companies that have come into this market than we've ever seen before. So how do we take advantage of that? Um, I can tell you that, you know, during a visit last fall, 
Uh, all the PEOs out at SSC made a trip to Indopaycom, and we went out to uh, South Korea as well to really understand what those service components are going to need as we go forward, and especially as we start to retire air, uh, aircraft in the future because uh, they may not be survivable for the, uh, for the uh, future missions. That was one of the key things that we certainly heard is how are we, we going to be able to task future space capabilities to provide the same type of persistence that we've been able to depend upon from an air asset. So certainly something that I know that uh, Colonel De Niro, who's the PEO overseeing the ISR piece out at SSC, is looking into right now, and a few efforts that I'm at least aware of that is uh, trying to look at how do we take advantage of commercial. Thanks, General. And sure. the goal of the Space Force is, of course, to work as closely as we can with the intelligence community to make sure our needs get met. And if the best way to meet our needs is to partner with them to build a, a shared constellation that may be allocated in new ways or in uh, previous ways, uh, then those are all on the table and being discussed by our senior leaders to make sure that these new capabilities that we put in space for the DOD are going to meet the DOD's needs. And uh, uh, the the it would well the concern is that there would be it would be duplicative and and not cost effective to build a a separate constellation from what the, the intelligence community might might need and uh, if we can get a combined constellation that meets everybody's needs and so whether that is uh, the, all those discussions are underway there's a wide trade space that is being discussed but I can assure you that our senior leaders are very committed to making sure that these DOD capabilities are, used for, are usable for Title X missions for our needs and our capabilities, regardless of who builds them. Right. And, and so that would be the number one priority. So they would be, it uh, doesn't matter who builds them, build them the most efficiently is what I'm hearing. But at the end of the day, um, the ISR from space capabilities that the Indo-PACOM commander may need, for example, will be satellites that he or she can task directly without going through a process in the national intelligence process, which, frankly, you know, the presidential's daily decision briefing trumps every other satellite collection in that national process. And so I, well, that's what I'm hearing you say is you're going to do it right. Set the acquisition part aside, and let's just do that uh, as quickly and, and efficiently as possible. Yes, sir. And one of the things that will help us is that sensors in space are becoming a commodity. They're becoming so proliferated right. that you don't, they don't have to be carefully rationed like a mainframe in 1970. And so I think that there, is going, there are going to be enough sensors in space to support everybody's needs. It's just a matter of how we organize them most efficiently and apply them most efficiently, and that's what we're aiming for. Great. All right. I'd like to turn to the audience and see what uh, questions they might have for the panel. We've got a few minutes left. First quest hand up over here I saw, and then one in the back of the room here in the middle. General, uh, thanks. Uh, Eric Weiss from Blue Origin. I'm actually I'm, I'm fascinated, General Shabo, by the second half of your title, uh, Combat Power. And this is a question really for the panel. How, how much can you share about how Space Force, Space Systems Command, uh, Colonel Felt, you know, headquarters uh, about space combat power? Because two years ago we weren't talking about space domain awareness. Now we're very much working towards space domain awareness, common operating picture. But space combat power, can you share your, your thoughts? Over? Yeah, I'll certainly start. Um, you know, we've said for a, for a long time, and certainly the CSO has made it very clear that the key to space superiority is, is space domain awareness. 
that is a key piece of my portfolio, and it's something that from a, both a ground and from a space-based perspective, we understand that today's systems are very capable. We've got new capabilities that are coming online. They're all based off of force design that have been done through either the SWAC or SSDP over the last several years. That really is forming the basis for what capabilities we need as we go forward. And that really is then meant as we field those capabilities, but we also look at a lot of the legacy capabilities. One of the challenges that we've had is uh, we have a lot of exquisite capability on the ground, uh, but we haven't necessarily kept up uh, with things as simple as data transport to take advantage of all the data that's coming off of some of these sensors. Uh, sensor data that um, could give operators in the future the, uh, the understanding of whether or not uh, visual magnitude or, or uh, radar cross-section, whether or not a vehicle is tumbling or not. That could give very clear indications of whether or not a satellite has been uh, damaged uh, on either side in the future. Um, so that's something that we're really going after is how do, we, how do we modernize the legacy capabilities that we have today and then how do we use force design to really look at a lot of the space moving awareness capabilities we need for the future threats that we see um, and, and fill those as quickly as possible. Um, a lot of that then comes back to how do that, does that inform you know, potential kill chains? Um, you know, I talked about this uh, about a week and a half ago out at NDIA out in Los Angeles. And we have to start talking about, you know, the threats that we face and how we're going to counter those. Uh, we can do that at an unclassified level in many cases, uh, but we've also got to bring it down from a SAP level. Uh, we don't have to talk specific capabilities, you know, necessarily today. Uh, but we do need to talk about you know, the overall process of what that might look like so that we can bring a broader audience, maybe at the SCI level, into the discussion and bring it so that we can really have an informed discussion about what that looks like and what it doesn't. That then starts to lay in uh, some of the, uh, the other aspects of portfolios that I have and certainly others are, are looking at as well. So I don't know if that answers your, your question fully, but I think that's kind of where I look at right now. Um, the other piece I'll say is, um, you know, that's, that's one of my portfolios. The other portfolio is uh, Battle Management Command Control Communications. I've had a lot of folks say, wow, two portfolios. Boy, it's time for another PEO. It probably is. Uh, but I'll also tell you that um, um, as a PEO overseeing those two portfolios, everything I just described is so tightly coupled be uh, between one and the other. You've got sensors. You've got potential effectors, and the only way that they are successful is that they have data transport, they have command and control, they have a data library uh, that is able to take that data and then inform decisions machine to machine. Uh, there's a natural synergy between these two, uh, two portfolios that for the last two years, my teams have been driving pretty hard, both from an acquisition standpoint and an engineering standpoint, but also from an overall funding perspective. The days of just delivering in a system uh, and saying that it was good enough is, is no longer good enough for what our operators need. We have to be able to look at a system and say, I've got the C2 connected, I've got to have the data transport, I know the data that's going to flow from A to B to C, I've got to have training so that it's actually a combat credible capability, and then that will play into those kill chains I kind of mentioned. So that's kind of the focus of where we've been trying to go the last two years, and certainly part of the larger space enterprise as we look at roles of the SSIO to SSC to integrate systems of systems across a lot of different space acquisition organizations. Thanks, Colonel Felt. Did you want to add anything to that? Just briefly, from an SQ perspective, we're very focused on, on partnering with the Space War Fighting Analysis Center, who is doing force designs in the protect and defend mission area to figure out what we need to 
protect our own capabilities, make sure they are there when the warfighter and the joint force needs them the most, and to defend our joint forces against any adversary threats in any domain uh, that sometimes uh, affects the space domain. So that partnership with the SWAC and their force designs tell us uh, what are going to be the most effective ways to perform the protect and defend mission. And then the ops community tells us how they're going to use that SWAC force design to actually protect and defend our assets. In SQ, then, we go buy what they uh, tell us to buy and, and make sure we buy it in a way that it's going to be usable by the operator in terms of how they want to use it. So we, that is absolutely essential part of what we're doing is making sure that we can, that those capabilities are resilient and there when the warfighter needs them. That, that includes a protect and defend mission, and those are our key partners in implementing that uh, as we move forward. Thank you. I think we have time for one more question in the back. Mark Stone, Independent Mathematical Defense Analysis Consultant. Could you please comment on the prospects for nuclear thermal propulsion, both to facilitate maneuver of operational assets, uh, satellites, as well as perhaps to uh, enable software to find maybe uh, on-orbit spares to quickly maneuver to different orbits to where they might be needed for new missions? Kind of a rapid response. I'll take a swing at this. Go ahead. Please uh, pile on. So um, DARPA uh, famously has a program right now to, to demonstrate uh, nuclear propulsion. Yeah, holding closer. Sorry about that. So uh, DARPA has a program to, to demonstrate this. I, I think the Space Force needs to look very seriously at the potential for nuclear propulsion uh, because you're right. It, it does offer the opportunity to maneuver without regret. And a lot of people will go to, oh, we can maneuver out of the way of a threat. I, you're doing it too late if that's your strategy, right? You need to maneuver frequently so that the adversary can never target you in the first place, right? That's what we need to do. So I think that's absolutely critical. When we look at um, uh, the ability to create a resilient architecture, we talk a lot about proliferation. We've talked a little bit about um, disaggregation, a little bit about diversification, and I think what your point is, uh, using nuclear propulsion, you're able to use diverse orbits uh, in a rapid fashion to, again, increase the overall resiliency uh, of the architecture. Um, as a power source as well, not just for maneuver, but as a power source, uh, you can do some incredible payloads uh, that, that have great military utility as well. Uh, there's another effort that maybe someone can, can elaborate on further to, to beam uh, power, solar power, to, to different users. Could you do the same thing with nuclear power and, and beam that uh, energy to users uh, uh, terrestrially uh, in orbit or, or even in the cislunar space? So I, I think there's a lot of potential uh, in that area that, that the Space Force needs to look at. Great. Thanks. Uh, Agree. Yeah, go ahead. It's a potentially disruptive technology. The reason that Honorable Cavalli is so interested in speed is so that we can harness the power of these potentially disruptive technologies faster than our adversary. So we, get, we, if, when, we want to evaluate it and use it as quickly as possible for, you, for our missions. Fantastic. I, I think this area that you just asked about, uh, nuclear propulsion using that technology and nuclear power in space for mission set, along with directed energy, are areas that uh, we need to, as a nation, increase our investments in because uh, I don't want to be five years from now watching the Chinese field something in both these areas and us, like in hypersonic, saying, well, we, we thought of that back in the 1960s. We just didn't do anything about it. I think the time is ripe for both of those to accelerate both those technologies and get out in front of our adversaries. But with that little soliloquy, I'm going to wrap up this great panel. Thank you, gentlemen. How about a round of applause for this great panel?